Church, it's an incredible thing that tells us that no matter what our week has looked like, no matter where we've been, no matter what we've done, no matter who we've been over the course of this week, the Lord in his grace still invites us to approach him in his throne of glory to worship him and respond to him because he has accepted us through Christ. He's adopted us into his family. And so we're welcome here to sing to him, to fellowship with one another, and now to hear from his word. And I'm just really thrilled that you've chosen to be with us today as we do that together. Welcome. If we don't know one another, my name's James Sharp, and beginning in January, I'll have the privilege of serving as the pastor of Teaching and Vision here at Life Church, and I'm pumped about that, excited to be moving toward that. Um, but right now, I'm still just a guy who gets to open the Word of God with you this morning, and so I'm excited to do that too. We're going to be today in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and so whether you brought a Bible with you or you brought a device that can get the Bible in front of you or you grab one of our black hardback Bibles that are laying around somewhere, I'd love it if you turn to 1 Thessalonians 5. That's where we're going to hang out today. John Stott, for many, many years, was the pastor at All Souls Church in London. Um, he was, in addition to that, a really famous and significant evangelical leader in his day, and he's also a prolific author. Um, and he wrote that in, in his commentary on 1 Thessalonians, he wrote that there are two distinct questions that have fa fascinated and really vexed the minds of people for generations. Um, and let me just read to you a bit of what he said. He said, the first question relates to what happens after death. Where are our loved ones who died? And shall we see them again? The second question relates to what will happen at the end of the world. Is there going to be a day of reckoning? And if so, how can we prepare for it? The first is the problem of bereavement. We would maybe say the problem of grief and concerns others who have died. The second is the problem of judgment. And it concerns us as well, he says. And I think that's just a, a wonderfully concise summary of the issues that Paul was addressing in 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning in verse 13, where we started last week, all the way through chapter 5, verse 11, where we will end this week. Last week, we, we dealt with that problem of bereavement or of grief, and the question before us was, is there hope for those who have died? And we celebrated the fact that Christian hope is a hope that transcends death, that death has no claim on us that the hope of the gospel cannot overcome. This week, we look at the question of judgment. The question that's before us is, will there be a day of reckoning? Will we be judged? Who will be judged? And by what standard will we one day be judged? And then on top of those questions, if there is a day of reckoning, how can we prepare for that day? What can we, should we, must we do to be ready? See, because intuitively we know as people that our lives must change if there is going to one day be someone or something that holds us accountable for the way that we live our lives. This is why you crammed for tests in school. Now, there are a few people in the room who never had to cram for tests, right? You always studied impeccably. You made sure that your assignments were done 
on time, all the time. You always did all of the assigned reading. And so when the teacher announced that there was a test the next day, you didn't stress at all about that because you were prepared. You had been living your life in a way that prepared you for that day of reckoning that would come when the teacher gave you a test. Now, I just want you to know, if you're one of those people who never had to cram for a test, the rest of us, we hate you. (laughs) I mean, we love you, but we hate you, right? Because the rest of us, that announcement that there was a coming test, like it would inspire in us a deep and profound panic because we realized that the way we had been studying and the way we had been preparing was deficient. And now that there was this announcement of the day of reckoning that was coming, a test that was going to assess us on everything that we learned, we knew that we needed to get our stuff in order. And so to prepare for that day of reckoning, we would radically change our habits. And we'd spend all night the night before studying and preparing and cramming as much information into our brains as possible so that we were ready for the day of reckoning. We know that our lives must change if someone is going to one day hold us accountable for our lives. What about our spiritual lives? What about our moral lives? lives then, how must they change if there is to be a day of reckoning? How should we prepare for that day? Those are the questions that 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11 answers for us. Let's read God's word together, and then I'll pray, and then we'll press into this together, church. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Thessalonica, he says this, now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, You have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation." For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Church, this is the word of the Lord for us today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would send your spirit in a special and intense way among us now, that we might have hearts that are ready to respond rightly to the teaching in these verses. And Father, I feel very acutely, in a very real way this morning, my own inadequacy to bring these truths before these people. And so I pray too that not only would you prepare all of us to hear I pray that you would be working in me, that you would restrain any unhelpful word, and that you would inspire words that are clear and that show us the truth that you have inspired here. 
And so, Lord, I pray that you would set me aside, that we might hear from you today. For indeed, Lord, we know that more than life and death, but indeed eternity is at stake and how we hear and respond to these ideas today. And so I pray that you'd work in this time that we have. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So as I think about these 11 verses, church, um, I feel like this is a long and fairly dense paragraph. There's a lot here. There are lots of things going on. And so because I'm kind of limited, um, I just have tried to simplify it as much as I can. And I think there are really two key questions that we need to think about that are presented here. And so the first question is, what will the day of reckoning look like? What is the future event that Paul is talking about and in a way describing here? And he names that future event, if you saw it, in verse 2. He says, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And so our first question is essentially, what is that day that he's talking about? This thing that's going to come like a thief in the night, what in the world should we expect? How should we be prepared for that? How should we understand that? And before we can answer that question in this passage, we really have to step back and think about the full teaching of the full counsel of God. We have to think about how the whole Bible speaks to the reality of a future day when God will appear and justly judge his enemies. And we see that the Bible speaks of that a great deal. Virtually every Old Testament prophet spoke of a coming day of judgment when God would judge his enemies or the enemies of his people. And if we read the prophets carefully, we see that Frequently, they spoke of that day, calling it the day of the Lord. And so let me just give you some examples. I think these will be on the screen behind me. This is Isaiah chapter 13, where the Lord declared his judgment against Babylon. Now, again, this isn't just some random judgment, right? This is judgment against a specific people who had oppressed his Old Testament, Old Covenant people. And so he declared that judgment in Isaiah 13, saying this, Wail. For the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble, and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed, pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. And so as we hear that, just, just keep in mind a couple of things. This is God's judgment, not just some future random judgment, but his very specific, particular judgment against Babylon. We believe that he executed that judgment against Babylon in about 530 BC. So this is something that has happened in history, this particular judgment here. But I want you to notice that as the prophet describes that day of reckoning, that day of the Lord, he describes it in a way that, frankly, it sounds like the end of the world. 
I mean, did you hear that? He said, every human heart will melt on that day. Pangs and agony will seize them on that day. Their faces will be aflame on that day. So his picture of this day is human faces like melting off like in Indiana Jones, right? Like it's this crazy, bizarre picture. It sounds like the end of the world. The sun will be dark at its rising. The moon will not shed its light. Darkness is always in the Bible a picture of the wrath of God being poured out. And so God's judgment against Babylon, the real historical judgment that he delivered through Cyrus the Great, the Persian king in 530 BC, when the prophet Isaiah wrote of that hundreds of years before, that sounded like the end of the world the day of the Lord. It's not just Isaiah. This is Ezekiel chapter 30. Now we're talking about the Lord's judgment against Egypt. This is a few hundred years after Isaiah. Ezekiel, he said, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy and say, thus says the Lord God, wail, alas for the day. For the day is near. The day of the Lord is near. It will be a day of clouds a time of doom for the nations. A sword shall come upon Egypt and anguish shall be in Cush, that's Egypt. Then the slain fall in Egypt and her wealth is carried away and her foundations are torn down. And again, I just want you to hear, this is a very particular judgment that God has in mind, a judgment against Egypt. But when he describes it, it sounds like the world is ending. It will be a day of clouds, he says, a time of doom for all people. Now, why do we need to care about these past promises of judgment, these things that have happened hundreds, even thousands of years ago? We need to care because as we think about the whole Bible, we come to understand that, yes, the day of the Lord can refer to a past act of God in history. But our passage today makes it also clear that there is a future day of the Lord still to come, that there is still some kind of day of the Lord that awaits this fallen world. And in fact, these past acts of judgment from God against Babylon, against Egypt, and against countless others, they're actually intended to foreshadow and to anticipate the coming judgment that will come at the end of the age. And so in other words, God has judged Babylon with the day of the Lord. He's judged Egypt with the day of the Lord so that we can better understand the judgment that awaits us so that we can have a better, clearer picture of the judgment that is still to come when the day of the Lord comes. And that would be terrifying, but for the fact that the prophets in the Old Testament sometimes spoke of the day of the Lord with a note of hope. And so this is Joel chapter two. And again, this sounds terrible. Joel says, the earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened. I think you're hearing these themes. And the stars withdraw their shining. This sounds like the end of the world. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. And who can endure it? But listen to the word of hope. Yet even now declares the Lord. Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, 
slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. And so in the face of coming judgment, God calls his people to repent, to to turn to him, and he promises restoration if they repent. Yes, he is a God of wrath. Yes, there is judgment that will come, but he is also a God of grace and mercy and patience and kindness. And so I point us to these things, church, so that we have a picture in our minds and in our hearts of what the day of reckoning will look like. Just as God judged the Babylonians and the Egyptians, he will one day judge all people. Every sin will be judged. Every careless thought and every careless word. Every selfish thought and selfish word. Every loveless thought and loveless word. All will be judged. This is what the day of reckoning will mean. But there is hope. God has made a way for his people to turn back to him. Now before we talk about that, I have to acknowledge, of course, that this this talk of the wrath of God and this future pending just judgment of God, I mean, that does not fall well on modern ears. I know that. Right? We modern people, uh, when we think about God, if we think about God, we tend to think about God as this sort of kind, loving, benevolent, grandfather kind of figure. He's there. He's conveniently uninvolved in our lives. But primarily, so long as we keep our nose mostly clean and live a mostly clean life, then he's happy with us. And what he really wants from us is to have this happy, full, joyful life. That's, that's kind of the modern view of God. He's out there. He's loving. And certainly, there's no room in the modern mind for a God of justice for a God of wrath. But, and and I, I hope that you will begin to hear me be just like a broken record on this particular issue, church, in the years ahead. I pray, in fact, that you come to, to know these things even before they come out of my mouth. We have to understand against this modern view of God where he's like this Santa Claus type figure who's just soft and cuddly and there for you when you need him and not when you don't, that, that that's not actually a loving being. That if that being exists, there's absolutely no way we could call him loving or kind. Because necessary for someone to be loving and kind is some kind of just judgment against those who are wrong. Right? A being cannot be, a God cannot be truly loving if he does not also punish those who are evil. If he doesn't bring his justice against those who defile what is lovely, then God cannot be loving. I can illustrate that this way. Um, I have in my house four kids. Um, Our oldest is 13, 11, six is our youngest, and our one daughter, Elliot, is eight years old. So we have three boys, but they're not important. The one who's important is my daughter, Elliot. And um, she's she's just this beautiful little girl. Um, Elliot has blonde hair and these piercing blue eyes that she inherited from her mother and I don't believe that there is a prettier little girl that has ever lived on the face of the earth than my daughter. And I realize there are some people in the room who would disagree, but everyone's wrong from time to time, and so that's fine that you're wrong in this particular case. Like, Elliot is as pretty as it gets, and I love her dearly. 
Now, if you were to do something to seriously harm my little girl, friends, I'm not very fast. I'm not particularly strong. I don't own a weapon of any kind. But if you were to hurt my little girl, I would end you, right? Like, I would do everything in my power to rip you apart with my bare hands if necessary because you harmed my little girl in a serious way. And I would say that that instinct in me is a necessary consequence of my love for my daughter. Because I love my daughter, if you hurt my daughter, I'm going to hurt you. That's not a threat. It's just a reality, right? And if I stood here and you harmed my daughter and I just said, you know, nah, that's not a big deal, you would question me, right? You would say, what's wrong with you, Sharp? You must not really love your daughter because I've harmed your daughter and you've just let it go. See, love and wrath, they necessarily go together. If a being is a loving being, if God is a loving God, then he is compelled by his love, by his very essence, by his very character to justly punish those who defile what is lovely, those who defile what is glorious, those who defile his holy and righteous name. He must, because of his love, bring his wrath against those people. And so we have to recognize that this whole idea that God's this like Santa Claus on a cloud who just you know, wants your life to be good, that that doesn't make sense. It's not consistent. It's not even possible. If we want a God of love, and we do, then we must also want a God who will hold all people accountable for their sin. We must also want a God of wrath, a God of righteousness, a God of justice. A God who will bring his wrath to bear against those who are responsible for the sin in the world. And brothers and sisters, I hope you know that's you and me. But that's not just the Hitlers and the Bin Ladens of our world. That's you and me. We are responsible for the brokenness in the world. We are responsible for defiling the holy and righteous name of God. And so we are deserving of wrath. God must pour his wrath out on us precisely because he is the God of love. That's, what's, that's the day of the Lord. That's the day of reckoning that will come. But we recognize too that even in the face of that day, there is hope. Right? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ that summons us to the hope that Jesus has already endured the day of the Lord for those who have trusted him in faith. And if we think about the cross, think about the gospel accounts of the cross of Jesus Christ. It's Luke's gospel that tells us that as Jesus hung on the cross, the sun was turned to darkness in the middle of the day. The temple tur- curtain was torn in two. The breath of the Son of God left the Son of God. And that very much sounds like the end of the world that the prophets describe because On that day, on the cross, the full weight of God's wrath, the just penalty for all of our sin was poured out on the Son of God. Jesus, as he died on the cross, he endured the day of the Lord so that those who trust him in faith wouldn't have to. So that those who have recognized our need for a Savior, so that those who have recognized our sin, so that those who have confessed that sin and repented of that sin and walk under the lordship of Jesus in faith, so that we would not have to endure the great and mighty and terrible day of the Lord. Who can stand on that day? Jesus and only Jesus can. 
but Jesus and only Jesus must. And he did on the cross. That's the hope that Christianity offers us. That's the hope of the gospel. And I must not move on, but before I say, I I pray that, that you know that hope. I pray that you know that Savior. I pray that you have rightly considered the reality of your sin and your sinfulness. I pray that you have repented of that sin and not just turned away from that sin, but turned to your Lord who died for you. I pray that you do that so that on that day, on the day of reckoning, you'll be found in him. The first question that we have to wrestle with in this text is what is coming? What is the day of the Lord? And then even as we begin to just glimpse that a little bit, we begin to think about how we prepare for the day of the Lord. That's the second big question that this passage answers for us. And as I read through these 11 verses, church, I think that there's clearly a way that we should not prepare for the day of the Lord and then three ways that we should prepare. And so let's just think through that for a minute. How not to prepare for the day of the Lord first. Simply, we don't prepare for the day of the Lord by idly speculating about when he will return. And that's the point of the first three verses. We can read them again. Paul says, now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, and you can just kind of hear a question that's been asked of him can't you? What is the time? What is the season when the day of the Lord will come? Concerning the times and the seasons, you have no need to have anything written to you. You don't need to know anything about the times and the seasons, he says. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. And they will not escape. So there are two illustrations that Paul uses there. He says, first, the day of the Lord is going to come like a thief in the night. You know what a thief doesn't do? He doesn't text you the night before he comes to your house to break into your house. A thief doesn't send you a message on the next door app to let you know that he's in your neighborhood and that he is about to steal from you. No, a thief comes suddenly and unexpectedly. And so too will the day of the Lord come. Paul doesn't stop with that. He also says that the day of the Lord will come like labor pains upon a pregnant woman. And labor pains, they come upon a pregnant woman suddenly, but not unexpectedly. Right? Women, when they are pregnant, usually know that they are pregnant. Before they begin labor pains, they have some awareness of the fact that there is a child in their womb. And so this is not unexpected, but it is sudden and it is inevitable. That's his point. He says they will not escape. And so a pregnancy, once it begins, it ends in labor pains unless some medical tragedy happens. And so Paul's point is that the day of the Lord will come suddenly, unexpectedly, and inevitably. But we can't predict when it's going to come, so we shouldn't try. It's foolish to speculate about when the day of the Lord will occur. Now, it seems natural to us to want to know because, you know, we can be better prepared, If you know when the test is, you know when you need to begin cramming for that test. But Paul's point is, don't speculate. That's foolish, because you simply cannot know when the day of the Lord will come. Now, for various reasons, for the whole history of the church, Christians have been fascinated 
by the idea that they might be able to predict when the day of the Lord will come. And this is why you see any number of bizarre theories that emerge anytime there's a new conflict in the Middle East or a new political leader kind of rises to the world scene and people begin to speculate that that political leader is the Antichrist. We have just wasted tons of time and energy in foolishly speculating about the end of the world. In fact, I wanted to confirm that that was still happening And so on Friday, as I was kind of like pulling some notes together for this morning, I came across a website that has created what the authors of the site call a rapture index. And because it was beyond belief, I just thought I'd quote to you a little bit about what they say their work is all about. And so keep in mind, Paul has said, we shouldn't speculate about the return of the Lord. Jesus said the same thing on numerous occasions. Jesus even said that even he didn't know the timing of his return. But here we have a website that's creating for us a rapture index. So let me quote. The rapture index has two functions. One is to factor together a number of related end-time components into a cohesive indicator And the other is to standardize those components to eliminate the wide variance that currently exists with prophecy reporting. Got it? No, good. Keep going. You could say the rapture index is, and I'm I'm quoting from the author of the site here, the rapture index is a Dow Jones industrial average of end time activity, but I think it would be better if you viewed it as a prophetic speedometer. The higher the number, the faster we're moving towards the occurrence of pre-tribulation rapture. End quote. Now, friends, I'm sorry to uh, poke fun at someone and their work and something that they have created, but I do this as an example of the way that we should not spend our energy preparing for the return of the Lord. Jesus will come. He will come swiftly and he will come suddenly but we will not know the hour of his return. And so may we not waste our lives speculating about these things when there are, in fact, much better ways for us to prepare for the Lord's return. That's what the rest of this passage tells us. And so I'll give you three ways that we should prepare for the return of the Lord, according to Paul here. First, Paul tells us, we should strive to be holy as we wait for the Lord to return. In other words, we should strive to live in a way that is consistent with the status and the identity that God has given us in Christ. Let me just show you that here in 1 Thessalonians 5, because it's, it's beautiful. So look at verse 4 with me. He says, But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. And then he goes on and he's developing this contrast between light and darkness, day and night. And his point, overridingly, is that we are not darkness, we are not night, we are children of the day. So that in verse 8 he can say, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope 
of salvation. But the key phrase there in verse 8 is, since we belong to the day. If you're a Christian, you belong to the day. There is a fundamental change to your status, to your identity that occurs when you are born again, when you trust in Jesus in faith. The Apostle Paul says in Colossians 1 that on that day, in that moment, we are transferred from the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of our beloved, of, his, of God's beloved son. Jesus himself, he put it this way, he says, you are the light of the world. Not try to be the light of the world, not shine your light in the world, but he says you are the light of the world. He's talking there about our status, about our identity, and a key component of that status in Christ, that identity that we have in Christ is the fact that Christ has made us holy. It's the doctrine of justification, with Matt, which Matt Perez talked about from this stage a few weeks ago. When we are justified, we are made positionally perfect. God confers upon us a status of holiness. And then the Christian's responsibility as we wait for the Lord to return is to become behaviorally what we are positionally. That's the doctrine of sanctification. We are to live holy lives because positionally before God, we are holy. We're supposed to live according to that new holy status that God has given us. Perhaps it helps to think about it this way. So in a month from this coming Thursday, uh, my family and I, we will load our cars and drive away from our home in Lincoln, Nebraska for the last time and we'll begin to just kind of meander across the lower 48 because we're going to go visit some family for the holidays and then visit some other family for the holidays. And then eventually, finally, after a long trip and thousands of miles, we will make it here to Salisbury, North Carolina, which will be our new home. We can't wait, by the way. But we're going to do that, right? We're going to become North Carolinians. Is that what you say? North Carolinians. Is that better? I got to work on that a little bit. My point is, on that day, when we arrive here, we will no longer be citizens of Nebraska. We will no longer be Lincolnites. We will be, whatever that word is that I can't say, North Carolinians, right? We will be citizens of this place. Our status will change. Is is it that funny, really? (laughs) Yeah, I'm not going to say that. I like my way better than your way. Thank you, Teresa. So, here's my point. <laughs> it's pretty easy to like, derail me completely. Um, my point is that we're going to have this, this change in status. right? We're going to be residents of a new place, citizens of a new place. And as residents of a new place and citizens of the new place, our behaviors must change. They must reflect that new citizenship and that new status. Right? I can't try to send my kids to school in Lincoln, Nebraska when we're citizens of Salisbury, North Carolina. I'm going to have to go to the DMV and like, get my driver's license changed and new tags for my car. I'm going to have to have a residence here in North Carolina because this will be my home. A North, Car- whatever, a North Carolinan is who I will be. And so it is critical, it is imperative that I reflect that status in the way that I live. Church, that's what Paul is calling us to here. He's calling us to live in such a way that we properly reflect not who we want to be, but who Christ has already made us 
to be. We're not trying to earn some new status. We're simply trying to reflect the status that we already have because of Jesus. And so as you just think about this in your life this morning, I have a question just for you to to chew on. You know, what behaviors or thoughts or desires in your life are inconsistent with who you are in Christ? What doesn't fit with your new holy status in Christ? May we turn from those behaviors and repent of those behaviors. And may we prepare for the coming of the Lord by living like who we are, citizens of light and not of darkness. So the first way we prepare, we strive to be holy as we wait for the Lord's return. The second way, we should strive to be confident as we wait for the Lord's return. We should strive to be confident, of course, not in ourselves, but in the hope of the gospel, in Jesus Christ himself. Look with me in verses nine and 10. Paul says, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. And so Paul's reminding the Thessalonians of their confidence in the gospel when the day of the Lord comes. Where they're not to fear that coming day. They're not to be anxious or nervous about that coming day. They're not supposed to be like thinking about their lives and hoping that their lives will measure up on that day. No, because he says so clearly, so beautifully, God has not destined us for wrath. No, he destined Jesus for wrath so that you need not be destined for wrath. And Paul then simply summons the Thessalonians and us to have great confidence to rest in and trust in the hope of the gospel and the death of Jesus. Amen. Again, let me just ask you, what behaviors, thoughts, or desires distract you from delighting in and resting in what Christ has accomplished for you? You know, what, what nagging voices in your head and in your heart cause you to focus on your performance more than you focus on Christ's performance? What lingering guilt and doubt in your head and in your heart cause you to fear that you might not measure up on that day? In what ways are you walking through life thinking, man, if I could just, if I could just do this, or if I could just be this, if I could just accomplish this, then I would arrive. Because that so often indicates that we're resting in and trusting in something other than Jesus and the gospel. And so may we rest in him while we wait for the Lord to come. May we rest in our holy, innocent, righteous status in him while we wait for his return. And friends, this is where I say, like this is to me the real tragedy of pointless end times speculation. Because it seems that that creates in some like a desire to know what's happening in current events and what's happening in politics and what's happening to fulfill specific Old Testament prophecies that supersedes simply our desire to know the Lord. Right? More than we want to know the day that the Lord returns, we should want to know Jesus. And we should want to know who we are because of Jesus. And so may we cling to those things most of all as we wait for the return of Christ. And then lastly today, we should strive to build up one another 
as we wait for the Lord to return. I hope you heard that in verse 11. This is how Paul lands. He says, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. And so I ask you, lastly, who can you encourage or edify with the truth of the gospel today while you wait for the Lord's return? Friends, there is someone who needs you. The trials and tribulations of life in this fallen world are becoming too much for them. They're being tempted towards doubt and towards despair. Maybe it's somebody in your life group. Maybe this is somebody in Life Kids who needs you to be investing in them. Maybe this is a neighbor, a friend, a coworker, a family member. Someone who is faltering. They need you to point them to Jesus. To the way that he endured all the wrath of God that is poured out on the day of the Lord for them. Who can you encourage with the truth of the gospel today as we wait for Jesus to return? Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to wait well. We pray that you would equip us and empower us to wait faithfully, trusting confidently in the work of Jesus for us, boldly living in light of our new status and our new identity, and loving and encouraging and investing in one another as together we wait for your appearing. Father, help us to be prepared and help us to love your appearing. Help us to long for your appearing so that though we do not speculate about when it will come, we rightly recognize that when it comes, he will bring us into fullness of joy because you will bring us to you. We pray this today in the name of Jesus. Amen.